I hope that you understand the Song of Solomon, that when we read it, when we sing it, like we just did, there is first and foremost a picture of Jesus Christ and His church. But there is also a real metaphor underlying it, and that is two real lovers, a husband and a wife, crazy about each other. Otherwise, the metaphor falls and doesn't come up to the level that it should of Jesus Christ and His church. They are both there. There are some that think the eight chapters of the Song of Solomon are a sex manual. There are others that think it's just a spiritual picture of Christ and the church to the exclusion of any marital advice or encouragement. Again, we try to take the crown of the road between both ditches. I know that John Gill, the great Baptist expositor and theologian of the 17th century, preached one verse through the Song of Solomon in the evening services for a number of years, as you can imagine how long it would take. And when I look at some of those verses and try to imagine preaching for an hour about her two breasts are like two young rows, it causes me some pause as to what I would say for an hour without really running my imagination wild. We take both because when Jesus said that not a sparrow falls, you know, he was just, that was a real event, not a sparrow falls, but he picked the sparrow as his metaphor for God's care for us, and it's meaningful to us because a sparrow is not meaningful. And I hope we see both in the Song of Solomon. Now, last Sunday for the second service, I couldn't have had a better introduction than what Daniel Jones did by standing here and reading some words from his mother about his father. But I'll make an effort. So I'd like to focus on another couple for just a moment. Yesterday, at Croft National Park, Carrie participated in an equestrian competition of riding a special horse, and she won three first places and took second in the fourth competition. Now, from her gruff and tough husband, I got these kind of emails, and I'm not reading them all. He went with her. He helped her participate. And he watched her, and he had this response. I married way above my class, it seems. Equestrian events are attended by the wealthier members of society that have horses or have access to horses to participate in those events. Carrie did a great job, and I loved watching her do something she loves. She entered four shows with a friend's Friesian Stallion and won first place in three of them and second place in the fourth at Croft State Park. Forgive my earlier national. We exchanged a few emails about how in the world did he arrive at someone above his class, as he put it, and we mentioned her father who was very bold. Your son, Mother Joy, 
was very bold when it came to carry joy. And he offered her to Adam upon his conversion. And it worked, brother. Yes, these are the words of Adam Green. Yes, David Taylor did something unlike anything he had done before by going out on a limb and writing me about Carrie. It was the right time, and the Lord did make our paths meet through Chris and many other details of dots the Lord connected for us. I am blessed greatly with Carrie as my wife. We are very happy together, and the Lord has been good and very good to us. Carrie looked quite regal today, riding that Frisian with ease, and took the crowd's attention, including the judges, immediately after riding into the arena. It was a thrill to watch. That is wonderful. I commend you, Adam, for early in your marriage, wasting money on something for which you see no use, and that's a horse. You can't eat them. You don't wear them. You don't milk them. And you don't fly them. You don't plow with them. But Adam did. And, and I, I commend you too. And I commend you for taking the time yesterday to go and watch her. That was a very nice thing. And I enjoyed so much hearing about it. Poor Jody got a call from me because I just assumed that the pictures and texts that were flying in were from her. Sorry, Adam. And so I called her and caught her totally off guard. What are you talking about? I didn't send you any emails about anything. But uh, I, I commend you. That's wonderful. Just think and bask in that for a moment. It was about another couple. And I can't talk about all the couples at once. But just bask in that for a moment and let's all reflect on what we could do better with our spouses and let that good example of something that took place yesterday provoke us. Turn to Proverbs chapter 17. Proverbs chapter 17. Let's see if we can cover a a few rules before the hour and go on our ways to be the spouses that we ought to be. Part of the grace and truth that Jesus Christ brought to us is how to have a marriage. That's part of the truth. And the grace He's put in our lives includes the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do everything He asks us to do. And so let's take the founder of our religion who gave us the Word of God and hear what he has to say about how we should be husbands and wives. This rule, forgive and forget. Forgive and forget. When your spouse does something to offend you, forgive them and forget it. Forget past faults of your spouse you have forgiven, or even if you haven't forgiven. It's the right thing to do. Forgive them and forget. Here's what happens when we don't. Proverbs 17 and verse 9. He that covereth a transgression seeketh love. We all want to be lovers seeking love, and doing that in a marriage means that we cover transgressions. This is not talking about us covering transgressions against God. We don't cover transgressions against God. We get repentance or punishment. 
This is transgressions against us. We cover them. We bury them. We forget them. But, look at the opposite. But, he that repeateth a matter separateth very friends. And a husband and a wife should be the best pair of friends possible. But bringing up past faults is to separate them. To repeat a matter. And you know how wicked man is by nature is to accumulate those things that someone has done against us so that when there is a confrontation, those things come flying up in a well-made list because we have kept them when we shouldn't have and outspews the hatred that we have for that other person by remembering those things. Let's not do that. Let's follow the rule of God's Word, forgive and forget, and go forward. Covering personal offenses is love. Repeating a matter ruins relationships. Look at chapter 10 and verse 12. This is the book of Proverbs, and we're gathering some of its principles and precepts and applying them to marriage. Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirreth up strifes. When you bring up something that someone's done wrong against you from the past, you're stirring up strife. You're causing a fight. You're wanting to war. And, and, and hatred's the only motivation that can be properly explained here. But love covereth all sins. Remember, I want to say it again so that there's never confusion about God's Word. Love does not cover sins against God. That's what, see, churches will raise a verse like this, and other Christians out there in society will raise a verse like this that we shouldn't really punish sinners because of verses like this. But this is not sins against God. This is not, these are not sins against the government. These are sins against us. These are relational sins. And so love covers them. And that's the wonderful way to live. Does 1 Corinthians 13, that long sentence about love that you oversaw at a recent youth retreat, Nathan, mention this a little bit? Yes, it does, repeatedly. Beareth all things, believeth all things, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity. And when you go through those 15 phrases, you find this rule of marriage supported. The degree you forgive a spouse will return on your head. Because Jesus said that He will forgive us, our Father in Heaven will forgive us to the degree that we forgive others. So the person that usually has the most offenses because we're around them more than anyone else is our spouse. By forgiving them, we bring God's blessing upon our lives. The worst that your spouse has ever done is only a hundred pence. Blow it off! You've offended the Lord to the tune of 10,000 talents. The difference between those two financial amounts is great. Very great. If you do not forget past offenses, they cause bitterness, and they'll fly out in a time of anger. Piling on when you are angry is further evidence that you have a cruel heart that doesn't know the grace of God. Let's know the grace and truth of Jesus Christ by forgiving and forgetting, and not piling on by bringing up things in a moment of confrontation or anger. Look at chapter 19 and verse 11. Proverbs 19.11. This is a great rule. Forgive and forget. 
God, oh, what does God say? What did Matthew Jones want to hit me with at break time? But Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12, I believe it is, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. If, if God treats us that way, let's treat each other that way, but especially not in the congregation at large, but with our spouses. Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. I'm not going to think about them. I'm not going to remember them. And I will never recall them. Proverbs 19 and verse 11, The discretion of a man deferreth his anger. That means to put it off, I'm not going to get angry right now. And it is his glory to pass over a transgression. The glorious husband passes over his wife's transgressions. The glorious wife passes over her husband's transgressions. Not against the Lord. Against you. Is what's under consideration. And all that is meant by a transgression. Discretion. That's another word for an aspect of wisdom of knowing how to behave in a certain situation at a certain time, discretion says, I am not going to get angry. I never write anyone when I first am faced with a problem. Ever. I'll wait a day. I'll wait as long as it takes for the passion to dissipate so that everything is objective. But that's not even dealing with a spouse. You know, with our spouses, we often will take exception and do things in a way that we might not with anyone else. But we ought to apply this first and foremost to our spouses. They're the ones closest to it. And a glorious marriage is a marriage where there isn't anger and personal offenses are overlooked and passed over. The nature of marriage means that faults are going to be known, so we learn to forbear. Forbear in the New Testament means to put up with and ignore. Do you know love? Do you, speaking to each of you, know what love is? Can you believe, hope, bear, and endure all things? There's four of the 15 phrases in 1 Corinthians 13. So rule number one for today's preaching about marriage. Forgive and forget. Let's turn to chapter 18 and go for rule number 2. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 20. A man's belly shall be satisfied with the fruit of his mouth, and with the increase of his lips shall he be filled. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. The first half of verse 20. A man's belly shall be satisfied with the fruit of his mouth. You're going to get back on you what you use your mouth for. The increase of his lips shall he be filled. You're going to get a filling of what you like to give others. Death. Now we're into verse 21. Death and life are the two options of the power of words. Death and life are the two options of the power of speech. They're in the tongue. And they that love it, that is the power of the tongue, whether it be death or life, shall eat the fruit thereof. If you like using your tongue for sarcastic ridicule and verbal abuse of your spouse in any way, shape, or form, it's coming back on you. 
You're abusing the power of your tongue. But if we were to use our tongues for good uses, we can also eat the fruit of that. And it will bring, bring blessing from God and blessing upon our spouses in marriage. You can kill a person or a relationship, or you can revive a person or a relationship. Choose you this day what you're going to do with your spouse by your tongue. This little member does great things, terrible things, hurtful things. Your speech will affect you as much as it does others, but you likely cannot see it when you're blasting off. If you love to talk, you will reap the sure consequences of whatever kind of speech you engage in. Your speech will either help or hurt you. A gracious man can win even kings, let alone a woman, by what kind of speech? Gracious speech. How did Shechem win Dinah? Thank you, Orville. He spake kindly to her. That's what the Bible wants us to know. He spake kindly to her. And he, who shouldn't have been able to get within ten miles of a descendant of Jacob, won Dinah. If there is a disagreement or offense, what kind of answers resolve it? A soft answer. Look at 15.1. Proverbs 15.1. It's just reminding us it takes two to fight. If your spouse says something, does something that raises your ire, that makes you want to respond, you think you need to justify yourself or defend yourself, you need to put your spouse in their place, look at what the Bible says. Proverbs 15.1, A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. You know, if, if grievous words fly off your tongue or lips, it's, things are just going to be worse. This is the Word of God. This is Jesus Christ coming to us with grace and truth about how to get along with other people, especially the ones that we live with as our spouses. It's beautiful wisdom. But you know what our natural tendency is? Is to spout off something in defense, in revenge, to fight, to spar, when we should cancel out and speak softly. Chapter 25 and verse 15, I think I used it last Lord's Day, so I just want to remind you that by long forbearing is a prince persuaded in a soft tongue. A soft tongue does what to the bones of even a prince? Breaks the bones. A soft tongue. Some have learned, some have never learned this rule, so they continue their wicked family traditions. But let's learn to return blessing for railing. Does the Bible tell us that sometimes we're going to get railed on? Could that be your spouse? Not unless your spouse is already glorified. I mean, it will be your spouse unless they're glorified. Your spouse will sometimes use their tongue in a sharp, cutting, sarcastic, critical, negative way. What should you do? Return blessing for railing. That's a Christian. You know, when we get smacked on one cheek, we're supposed to turn the other because really a smack on the cheek or cheeks is not going to hurt us. And when someone rails on us, didn't we learn a long time ago, didn't our mommies teach us in school, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Thank you, Josiah. His mommy taught you that? Sorry to call attention to your family, James. 
We love your family. Let's learn to return blessing for railing at all times with our spouse. That is a real loving man or a real loving woman. A true Christian spouse will overcome evil speech with good speech. Be not overcome of evil, Paul taught us, but overcome evil with good. Praise. Praise them. Praise is an easy and powerful tool to build up a spouse and promote your marriage. That's what Shechem knew to do with Dinah. He spoke kindly to her. Give your spouse credit they deserve for their good points, in private and public. Jesus honored wicked churches. Paul praised Corinth. Neither of them were perfect, and we're not married to perfect spouses, and mine especially is not married to one. But we can still honor. It is a fact of man's existence that praises a positive reward that highly motivates. Women are highly motivated and responsive by the praise of their husband. They're turned on by words, guys. Do you need more details? Then write me for a couple's retreat, because I'm not going to give them here. Women love speech, words. They're verbal, more verbal in orientation than we are. Learn gracious speech that comforts or edifies your spouse like the New Testament teaches us. Now women, you need to learn to hold your tongues for your speech problems are well known in the Bible. Look at chapter 21 of this wonderful book of wisdom that God has given us. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 19 It is better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and an angry woman. Contentious means she's arguing, she's nagging, and she's angry about it. It's better to dwell in the wilderness, have a tent out in the middle of the boonies, instead of being in a nice, comfortable home with a woman that can't control her mouth. Women, you need to learn to hold your tongues. Look at 27 and verse 15. Thank you, Lord, for the book of Proverbs in your divine library. (coughs) Verse 15 of chapter 27, a continual dropping in a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. They're both very irritating and they're wrong and a woman should stop. But if we come over to chapter 31 and verse 26, we have what ought to be in a good wife's mouth. Proverbs 31.26 is describing the virtuous woman. She openeth her mouth with wisdom. She doesn't say anything unless it is necessary to the situation and valuable for the situation. She openeth her mouth with wisdom. Nothing foolish, nothing filthy, nothing jesting, Nothing sarcastic comes out of her mouth. She openeth her mouth with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. She only says kind things until she's pushed to where she has to say to a child something that isn't quite so kind, but even then it's still kindness because it's correcting. But notice this verse about a virtuous woman. It's uh, Though most of it is about her domestic diligence, and her professional diligence, there is this verse right here, verse 26, and the warning throughout the book of Proverbs has been that there are odious women who cannot control their mouths. And it is one of the worst things on earth is an odious woman when she is married. There are four things the earth cannot handle, and one of them is a woman when she's doing this. That's what Solomon said 
That is what God said. But the virtuous woman, she openeth her mouth with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. Oh, that's good. That's good. Women, lay hold of that. When 1 Peter 3 and verse 4 says that a woman is of great price in the sight of God who is meek and quiet, are there either of those two words that are difficult for you to comprehend? Meek is humility, not putting herself forward, not wanting to argue or debate with her husband. She's meek. She submits under oppression. She doesn't fight back. She's meek. Moses was the meekest man in the face of the earth. When were we told that fact about Moses? When the nation of Israel, the leaders of it, 250 princes, some wicked men were criticizing him because he had put up with their guff for so long. He was one of the meekest men on earth. But a woman is supposed to be meek toward her husband and quiet. Do you know what quiet means? It means cut your words in half. And when you get there, cut them in half again. Reduce your number of words. Be quiet. Wait till you're asked. Young man, here's a piece of advice for you. Instead of looking at a girl, I know what you want to do. You like to look at them. Listen to them. Don't look. Listen. Listen to her at all times, in all places, and multiply by ten. Because whatever she's doing now, it'll be ten times worse later when you're caged up with her for the rest of your life. That is horrible. So I just gave you a piece of advice. For those of you that hardly say anything, for those of you that hardly say anything because you have a disposition that is given to great reservation and reticence verbally, not saying anything can be just as bad. Because sometimes your husband wants your opinion Sometimes your husband wants to hear what you're thinking and then you need to speak because he's asked you to speak. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. Two rules so far. Forgive and forget. Words have consequences. Oh, help us keep our words, Lord, especially toward our spouses. Ephesians chapter 5. We want the best marriages. We want the best marriages for the glory of God. We want the best marriages for the adorning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want the best marriages for the shutting of the mouths of gainsayers and blasphemers. We want the best marriages to show that opposite sex unions work the best. And that God's word still works in the 21st century. We want the best marriages so our children see them and want to emulate them. We want the best marriages because it's one of God's great gifts to us under the sun while we're here on the earth. We won't have a spouse in heaven because marriage isn't good enough for heaven. But while we're here, it's one of God's great gifts to us. Ecclesiastes 9.9. Third rule. The first two were forgive and forget. And words have results. Words have consequences. And it's how we use those words. A man that speaks kindly 
and rules his speech and praises his wife is going to get a return. And the man who speaks harshly, sarcastically, and abuses his wife, he's going to get a return, but it's going to be a very different kind of a return. Lord save us from that. Okay. Ephesians 5.33, as Paul draws this 12-verse section to a close about marriage, he says in verse 33, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. And we had that explained to us in verses leading up to this. And the wife, see that she reverence her husband. I want to focus on the second half for this particular rule. Reverence. Reverence of your husband is required. It's a commandment. It's Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth, the Son of God, God manifest in the flesh, giving His rule for marriage. Reverence is required. Wives are ordered to reverence their husbands. This is not submission. This is not even close to submission. Submission is obeying and doing what He wants you to do even when you don't like it or think there is a better thing to do. That is submission. Reverence is how you treat your husband and speak of him inside, outside, and to others. For instance, we all know Ephesians 6, 1-3. through 3, Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. That's verse 1. Very short. It's over. It's gone. Now we're to Ephesians 6, 2. Honor thy father and thy mother, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the earth that the Lord giveth thee. Two different commandments. Children, obey your parents. When they tell you to do something, do it. Children, honor your parents. That means to treat them specially, to lift them up, to be kind toward them, to go out of your way to show them respect and kindness. It reaches the point where they are near death's door, and it says to honor your parents by providing the money for their upkeep and care in 1 Timothy chapter 5, when it says honor widows that are widows indeed, it is speaking of financial remuneration and support for them. So I want you to remember the distinction that we teach our children. It's one thing to obey your parents, but it's another thing to write them a note that they find on their pillow when they go to bed at night that thanks them for all the things that they have done and are doing for you. That is honor. Saying, yes ma'am, no ma'am, yes sir, no sir. That is a way of honor that you give your parents. It has nothing to do with Ephesians 6.1. Now back to wives. We have in verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. And what? who's the Lord? The Lord Jesus Christ that I preached to you this morning. So there is submission. That is to obey and do what He wants you to do even when you don't like it or you have a better way of doing it. You do it His way anyway. But this verb here in 33, nevertheless, the wife should see that she reverence her husband. That's like the difference between a child obeying and a child honoring. Reverence is respecting him and putting him up 
and giving him honor verbally and in the way you conduct yourself toward him. The body language when you're around him and he's in public. The way you speak to him, the way you speak about him. Reverence. We reverence those that are in authority above us, and the higher the authority, the more reverence we show them. And this is to be practiced in the marriage relationship because the Bible teaches it. To reverence someone is to hold them in high respect or esteem, to venerate as being of an exalted or superior kind. Fits perfect. I'll read that definition again. It fits perfect. To hold in high respect or esteem, to venerate as being of an exalted or superior kind. And that's how it's used throughout the Bible. Now let's turn to 1 Peter 3, 6 and see an example of a holy woman that's been recorded for us. And we've been here before, but I just want to remind the women, if we're going to have the great marriages that the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to have, we need to have them His way. And His way includes reverencing husbands. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 5. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God, these are real Christians, adorned themselves, not with clothing or gold or apparel or costly array or hair. They adorned themselves being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. To be a daughter of Sarah means you need to be in subjection to your husband and you need to obey him. But you also reverence him by referring to him as Lord. Two different things. Because the obedience of Abraham was outward. He gave Sarah things to do. She did them. The subjection was outward. He gave her things to do. She submitted herself to them. This reverence by Sarah was in her heart. When we go back in the Bible to Genesis chapter 18, she calls Abraham her Lord in her thoughts. That is a lofty point. This was, this was none of the yes my Lord or yes my lady of stuffy movie material. This was how Sarah thought and talked to herself about her husband when she was thinking of him. You speak out of the abundance of the heart. The Bible, Jesus taught us. You want, you want to believe the founder of our religion? Jesus said, the mouth speaketh out of the abundance of the heart. So if a woman thinks in her heart the way she should in reverent terms about her husband, that's what will come out. And if she thinks rebellious, foolish, disrespectful thoughts, they will also come out. You know, David was reverenced by Abigail the way that she treated him. And by Bathsheba, and you can say, yes, he was king, but he was also a husband, and he wasn't Abigail's king when Abigail treated him the way that she did. This verse right here is not an order for you to call your husband Lord, but to reverence him similarly. It just says that here's here's an example given to us by a holy woman of the Old Testament. And Sarah's showing us how to do it. And it was inside. If you don't ever call your husband Lord or Sir, I'm just asking so that you can educate me. How do you show him godly reverence? 
Just curious. I know what, I told, didn't I tell you last Sunday that I know what happens when you're doing 16 to 45? That poor little 23-year-old that just got his criminal justice degree pulls up to your door, 23 years old and in some blue cotton, and you know what you call him? Sir. Oh, 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 oh yes. You call him sir. I'm, so I'm just curious. If you don't ever call your husband Lord or Sir, how do you show him your godly reverence? Because maybe if you would share it with me, then I could share it with the church and we could all be more reverent. Some say, I can't reverence him when I don't respect him. Well, that's two sins. You don't respect him and you don't reverence him. You haven't protected yourself. You haven't done right. You've just committed a second sin. The lack of respect is a sin. Respect is a choice. And the choice is made on the office more than it is on the person. It is a choice that I respect the present president of this country. If you were to push me in my flesh, you would find out how little respect I have for him. But he's in an office that demands my respect. Because God said to give it to him. And so I give it to him. And if he were to ever visit this church, if I could make my way through the secret servicemen around him, I would show all of you how much reverence I would give him. Because he holds a reverent, reverend position of deserving honor as a little God on earth. And I don't want to get off on that subject. But wives, when you say, well, I can't reverence him when I don't respect him, then respect his office. And reverence Him for His office. Husbands don't have to earn your respect to get reverence. Where in the world did that idea come from? I can't find it. In looking up every verse about husbands and wives, I didn't see where husbands have to earn your respect in order to get reverence. All you have to do is get married and now you owe reverence. Because you said, I do. And Jesus Christ ordained marriage. God demands both respect and reverence. Reverence isn't just icing on the cake of submission. It's a cake in its own right. Staying with your husband and doing what he wants is not reverence by a long country mile. It's the way you speak and look at him. The way you speak about him. Your body language, your face. It's a wonderful thing to give a husband the honor that is due him based on what God has said. And it's a public thing so others can see it. You can learn to reverence your man, to obey God, to please Him, and to prepare for the day of judgment. If you were in court, I know what you would say. Yes, Your Honor. Hello. I'm speaking this just to make a point as a fool. You mean the man in the black pajamas? You'll say, yes, Your Honor but you won't to the husband that God put over you? Why do you think a boss and a job deserves reverence, but your husband doesn't? Why and how can you reverence a doctor? What's a doctor? Let's be realistic for a moment. A geek that goes to school 12 years longer than he needed to. Why do you reverence him, but you blow off about your husband? Women are very capable of recognizing insolence in children, but can they recognize their own? 
You won't let your children talk to you that way. Wives, you should never answer again or talk back, just like good employees are told not to do that to their masters in the flesh. Do you treat your husband like a little god? Do you praise him? Are you humble with him? Are you silent when he criticizes you unjustly? Ah, okay. Are you silent when he criticizes you unjustly? But it's unjust. Let God take care of it. It's not your place to take care of it. What, is it, what does the Bible tell us about obeying a froward master? That's the only thing you can ever do in your marriage to get praise from God is to submit and take something silently when your husband is wrong. Other than that, you can't do anything to get praise from God. Because you have to have something messy, ugly, and against the flesh in order for you to overcome it out of conscience toward God to not say anything back, to reverence Him. Never toss your head. You keep your face reverent. The Bible knows about the rolling of eyes. The Bible condemns rolling of eyes of children toward their parents and considers it a capital offense. This is God's religion. I believe God's religion. I want to practice God's religion. I'm going to preach God's religion. I'm not going to modify it in the least bit. Don't turn away from your husband when he's talking to you. Don't roll your eyes, slam a door, or hide in a room. Get out there and face him. He's your Lord. Your duty is to adore him like the girlfriend of the high school quarterback does. I need to ask the wives another question. Christian women, expect men to get down on a knee to propose. Now I know that I'm Neanderthal. But I just want to point out something that's pretty obvious to me. A really stupid practice. Christian women expect men to get down on a knee to propose, which is inversion of honor. It's the servant on a horse and the prince walking it. But, now women, listen. You say, but I like my husband down on his knees in front of me. I know, but that's why I'm bringing up the rest of this question. But why do you revolt at getting down on your knees to reverence him in marriage? Do you want to show me that you were a wife worthy of that prince getting down on a knee for you? Then get down on your knees and sit at his feet when he's in his lazy boy reading a magazine and play with his calves and let him know that you are his wife. Some of you wives already know what I'm talking about and you're a blessing to me. You're blessing the Lord. Amazing to me. I'm sorry that I just look and think and read things through the, the spectacles of Scripture. What in the world does a man have to get down on his knees for a woman for? Do you think President Obama is going to come in here and get down on his knees in front of us? The Bible speaks of these kind of things. It's an inversion. And it comes from the top down. An inversion of honor. But yet, I wonder how many of you women, when was the last time you got down on your knees to your husband. I just thought I'd mention it. Everything in this generation in our society screams against the reverence of husbands. It is not ignorant insanity of Neanderthals sitting around a fire demanding worship. 
That's not where it came from. It came from God's Word. And I want to preach God's Word in its fullness to you. It is by order of the living God, clearly stated and fully consistent with all other spheres of authority. Those same wives expect it from their children. Those same wives give it to policemen, give it to judges, and give it to their bosses and bosses' bosses on the job. But they don't want to give it to their husband. Husbands are to be feared. Are you at First Peter chapter 3? Do you know what it says there? Verse 2, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Husbands are to be subjected to with fear of God and fear of the husband. Odious women, just like civil and job rebels, make excuses to justify their lack of reverence. Three rules. I love the Word of God. Let's all love the Word of God together. Do you believe that our Father in Heaven created the man, the woman, created love, sex, and marriage? He knows absolutely best how they ought to function together for the happiness of both? Do you believe that? The Lord be with you, brother. Do you believe that? Then let's do it His way. Do you know what kind of a powerhouse shows up at the office when he has an adoring, reverencing wife at home? Why, why does the world have a saying, behind every great man there's a great woman? Because an adoring female turns ordinary men into extraordinary princes. I got to go to rule number four. Oh, ladies, you have an opportunity. The three rules we've covered so far forgive and forget, both directions. Words have consequences. So let's praise and be kind instead of sarcastic, cutting, and hurtful. And reverence is a requirement, not a suggestion for marriage. Make that man a king in your house. His life, his breath, his job, his food. Everything he does and about him is more important than yours. It's the way God made it. Just like if President Obama were to visit here, he is more important than me, and I would be happy to tell him that. And I did do that to men on the job. I wanted to be their servants. I wanted them to abuse me a little. They didn't enough. Let me give you, okay, number four. Love is not a feeling. Love is not a feeling. Oh, love is not a feeling. Anyone in the 21st century has been taught that love is always and only a feeling. Right. Oh, they'll say this. Some girl. I just love being with Bobby. What are you talking about? I just love being with Bobby. Or Bobby says... I love her so much, I can't stand it. What is taking over these two kids? It's another L word. And it is four letters long. But it isn't love. It's lust. I hear a woman. I just don't love him anymore. Well, why not? He says, I love someone else now. What are you talking about? What do you mean you love someone else now other than the one you're married to? There is no record in history of a generation so addicted and obsessed by their feelings than this one. 
and so distant from their duty. Duty is so much more important than feelings. By media, gone to seed, music and movies, love is a feeling of desire or pleasure. Love to a modern American is merely chemistry, desire, or situation of attraction. What triggers their love feelings? Stop with me and think. What triggers, I just love being with Bobby. What are you talking about? What triggers that feeling? It is either a look, the status of Bobby, a touch from Bobby, or a word from Bobby. It is lust only. Guys, you want to tell me how much you love someone, huh? That you haven't married yet? Uh, was it because she looked at you? Because she's the prettiest girl in the church? Or in the top three? Because she touched you? Or because she flattered you with a word? I just need to know which of the four it is because it isn't anything else. All that the world has to offer is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, and that's what generates the feelings of lust, which is commonly called love by our world. Hollywood is fed by ignorance and devilish design this rule. Follow your heart. Do you know how many movies are based on following your heart against daddy, against mom, against church, against everything? Follow your heart? Are you kidding me? Who would come up with that? I'll give you three guesses and the first two don't count. Who would come up with follow your heart as a way of governing your life? The devil. Because the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things. How deceitful is that? The heart is deceitful above all things. And how wicked is it? Desperately wicked. Desperately wicked. Believe what the Bible says. Don't go by your feelings. Love is not a feeling. Love is a duty and a responsibility. And the feelings come with putting it into practice. The feelings don't come to get you to do it. The feelings follow doing it. And we have to have that order right. Sodomites justify their sin, their abominable perversions, by love for the same sex. Isn't that right? Didn't I send you something recently about genetic sexual attraction? They're justifying it the same way. That's called incest. Incest is now being justified in certain limited circles at the point, at the, at the, for the present time, as GSA, genetic sexual attraction. We love each other, and our love is overwhelming. And even though this might be repulsive to some people, you should allow us to have our love. What are you talking about? There isn't any love in it. It's lust. Sodomites justify their sin the same way, by love for each other. But I'm still trying to figure out why is murder frowned on when murder usually has the strongest feelings possible associated with it. Man, he really got me angry. But uh, that's still not, that's still not condoned too much. Feelings. What feelings did Jesus have in the Garden of Gethsemane? What feelings did the Lord of glory, the perfect man, our Savior, our King, our Prince, our always perfect example, what kind of feelings did He have in the Garden of Gethsemane? He was in an agony. He was in an agony over the torture coming. 
He did, he did not want to do it. He asked God if it be possible to choose another way for him to do it. But he submitted to do it out of duty. He didn't have feelings for it. He did it out of duty because he loved serving God. He wanted to serve God. He never wanted to disappoint God. That is how he loved his Father in heaven. It wasn't because of a rush of feelings. Paul said that he did what he did as an apostle against his will. If Paul was doing what he did against his will, was he doing it for feelings? He was doing it to serve the Lord Jesus Christ who had saved him. And he made a logical agreement, a logical reasoning and argument in his heart and mind that if he had, was condemned to death and Jesus had saved him, then he owed him his life. It was an easy equation for Paul. But notice, it's out of duty, not feelings. Can music make you feel or think things? Oh yes. Sad? Can music make you sad? Can it make you militant? Can it make you think of sex? Can it make you get more intense? It's stirring up your body. Music. I don't mean lyrics. My brethren, what do you feel about cutting your yard or when you walk into the kitchen and see a large pile of dishes? What do you feel? What do you feel before and what do you feel after? Is it different? So if you look at your spouse and you just don't feel much, what should you do? Cut the grass. I mean, <laughs> metaphorically. Metaphorically. Do the dishes. The feelings will come. Oh, that felt good. You know why? Because God will bless it. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And your spouse will like it too. Who knows what you'll get out of it. You might get overtime. What does the prettiest girl in class need to do to help you think that you're in love with her? Look at you for two seconds? Touch you? Or write you a little note? Well, text you. You know, it's all over. The guy's captive on the chain of love. But it's lust. What about the ugliest girl in class? Prettiest girl in class, all she has to do is look in your direction, you're in love, chained. Chained in love. What about the ugliest girl in class? If you were to make a choice to invest in her, in the way that I'm about to describe, feelings would come. Why do feelings, the feelings that this world talks about, require attractiveness, flattery, libido, or status? Why? Because they are nothing but lust. Love is a choice. Love is a choice to direct care, kindness, and mercy to another person for their profit and their pleasure. I could repeat that all day and I still wouldn't be satisfied personally. Love is a choice. It is not a feeling. It is a choice to direct. That means it's an action. Love is a choice to show action of caring, kindness, and mercy to another person for their profit and pleasure and joy. The Bible says that you can choose to love or not to love. The Bible says that you can set your love on things that you otherwise wouldn't. And the Bible says that you can prioritize your love of any two things. Where does it say that? Well, let's do it this way. Love is a duty. 
It's a commandment in the Bible. A precept of conduct that's acceptable to God and men. When the Bible says, husbands, love your wives, it never implies nor teaches, wait for the feelings of love to come. That is an entirely different set of actions. It just says, husbands, love your wives. That is an imperative verb telling you what you should do because you can do it because real love is a choice of action to help another person for their profit, pleasure, and joy. No one naturally loves their enemies, but our Lord Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, the one I have presented to you today as the founder of our religion says, love your enemies. So guess what? We are all capable of loving the ugliest girl in class. And when you're upset at your spouse, guess what? The, where they are on that list. We can do it. The Bible says you can set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. We have an instinctive love for the things on earth, but the Bible says that we can set our affection. Love follows a choice. Lust drives choices. It is totally different. We choose to love. That's why it's commanded. The feelings that you have are lust, and they drive you to do things that are wrong. Either in your thoughts, your words, or your actions. Discipleship is learning to love Jesus Christ over the other love relationships in your life. Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, if a man comes to me and doesn't hate his wife, but the same Jesus said to love that wife. That means there's a priority in the love. My love of Christ is greater than the love of my wife. It means that you can prioritize. You can choose to love something that you would not. You can choose to set your affection. Love is not a feeling. And if you, if you wait around for the feelings, you're never going to be the spouse that you should be to please Jesus Christ. When you meet Him, He is not going to ask you about your feelings. He's going to ask you, did you love your spouse? And you're going to say, I just didn't feel like it. When your children do that to you with that kind of an answer, the last time your boss asked you something, why you didn't do so, I just didn't feel like it. How far did you get? This is exciting. It's God's Word. He tells us repeatedly that love is an action from a choice that we make. I just don't love them anymore. Oh, how many marriage counselors have heard that junk? Well, I'm going to give you three seconds to start loving them. One, two, three. That's all they need. They don't need to lie in a sofa with me swinging some locket over their eyes back and forth. Hear my words. They need your sinning. Get over it. Start loving. It's a choice. You can love the ugliest girl in class. And you're not married to her. Be thankful. Love is an investment in another person to make them better. For them... And for you. You say, is is there really a selfish motivation like that? Listen, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. How does a husband love his own body? That means loving himself. How does he love himself? He loves his wife. Women do not balk at that use of motivation on men, because let's be honest, between you and all my sisters, 
the greatest love your husband has is for himself. So that if he listens to Ephesians 5 and gets it by the power of Christ, he will love you like that. And that's the highest love he's ever had. That's what Paul taught in Ephesians 5. No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it. Oh yeah. You want to be nourished and cherished? Then hope that your husband starts loving you like he loves himself. That's what Bible teaches. The definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't have anything about feelings, but it does talk about duty against your feelings. The whole message of the Bible is against feelings. And it calls feelings in the Bible flesh, lust, and your body. But I keep my body under. Fleshly lust. The lust of the flesh. Those are the feelings that the world describes that we cannot wait for, that we should not be waiting for, looking for, or measuring our lives by them. The gospel of Christ gives us duties which, if done, they result in our profit and our pleasure. Love produces feelings. Bowels of compassion are taught. Bowels of compassion are invested. Bowels of compassion are bought. And they give us a return by investing in another person. When you go after that ugliest girl in class and do nice things for her, it creates bowels in you. Because that little smile on her face, that little twinkle in her eye, that she just had something done for her, will light you up. But there weren't any feelings. But now you're getting some feelings. It's just like when you dry the last dish. Do you get a feeling? Oh, that's over with. Oh, it's good to have that done. Yes, and you get the same thing when you love someone. Lord, help us. Rather than feed feelings, feed duty and responsibility, and they'll bring feelings. The ones that are waiting for feelings don't ever get them. The ones that ignore feelings and just invest where they're told to get feelings. Do not forget, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And sex isn't love. Sex isn't love. Don't measure love by sex, by giving or receiving sex. Are you a dog? Sex is not love. Most sex has nothing to do with love, only lust. In marriage included, most sex. Little sex is actual lovemaking. For sex to be love, for sex to be love, it focuses on the other person to please God, doing it His way, and to please them in what they would want, where, when, and how often they would want it. Many, many foolish guys and girls have been seduced into sex by claims of love. We all know that. In the Bible, it's a woman seducing a young man by a claim of love. If you love me, then you're going to come home with me because my husband's gone on a long business trip and we will take our loves until the morning. We will feed on love until the morning. That is lust. The whore says, if you love me, you will make love with me. But that's fornication. Good sex does not prove a marriage good, but a good marriage will likely have good sex. If you wait for feelings, you're going to ruin relationships and never fulfill your responsibilities. So let's blow them out. The Lord will send them in due time. Have you ever come to this place, this house, tired, distracted, cold at heart, that if you were to give the Lord a proper assessment, I'm so dull spiritually right now, I don't even know if I should go through the door. But you go through the door, you get in here, and all of a sudden we sing a few songs, there's a few prayers made, a few passages of scriptures are read, 
And all of a sudden, boy, am I glad to be in the house of the Lord. You know, the feelings come. Do you know why they come? Because you got out of bed earlier than you would have to on Sunday. You got in your car, got the family dressed, drove here, and got in here, and then the Lord took care of the rest. If you'll do that towards your spouse, the Lord will take care of the rest. If you wait for feelings, you are an immature, selfish infant screaming to be fed, demanding your lusts. If you are feelings driven, you are a city with walls broken down and a real mess. You are a fool or a scorner. You will ignore instruction that does not move you. Pastor, are you telling me that any two people could love each other and have positive feelings? You got it. Yep. Even the ugliest girl in class? Yep. Yep. No problem. I would have more confidence in a marriage based on duty than one on feelings. How did arranged marriages work in the Bible? Did Isaac love Rebecca? Did they meet at the prom? How'd they meet? Well, Isaac was wandering in a field. Rebecca, Rebecca was lighting off her camel, and I don't mean a cigarette. Isaac was meditating in a field, and he'd never met her. He hadn't seen a picture of her, and they hadn't tweeted. And she's on a camel, and she says, Who is that? That's my master, your husband. She puts a veil on, gets off her camel. They go into her mother's tent. Isaac's happy. Rebecca's happy. Rebecca, I love Rebecca in the Bible. I love that one too. But I love Rebecca in the Bible. That woman, that servant of Abraham said, Lord, whatever woman offers me drink, a stranger out of this well, and wants to feed my wants to give drink to my 20 camels she's a good woman now you can't find a woman like that do you know how much camels drink i've been through this so many times they drink 20 gallons at a pop when they've been traveling for a long time do you know how much water is in a 5 gallon pail 5 do you know how many trips you need to make for one camel 4 do you know how if he had 20 camels how many trips is it 80 do you know what it says she ran when that little Rebecca was at home and her mommy was starting to boo-hoo about losing her daughter because she didn't believe in leave and cleave, can't you stay 10 days with us? 10 days? What are we going to say in 10 days that we can't say in two minutes? Okay. The, the, the servant of Abraham said, let's ask the last. Let's ask the maiden. Rebecca, your mom and your brother say you ought to stay around for 10 days to say goodbye to us. What do you say? This matter is of the Lord. I'm ready to go right now. Let's love Rebecca in the Bible because she's a great example. She's one of the holy women of the Bible. I need four ushers. I've tried to give you four rules from the Bible about marriage and love. Forgive and forget. Words have consequences. Require, or reverence is required. And love is not feeling. Love is a duty. And by loving, the Lord will give you the feelings. I am passing an outline to you that was used at a couple's retreat eight or ten years ago. Can't remember when. I'm just briefly going to tell you what it shows, and then we're done. Four rules. Forgive and forget. Words have consequences, good or bad. Reverence is something God requires. 
And love is not feelings. Love the one you're with. That's a song by the world of fornicate with the closest female or male. That isn't what we mean. We mean to love in the biblical way that the one that the, the, one that the Lord's given you is your spouse. There are four columns. The first one is the providence of love. Robert is a, is a middle-aged man who's a widower, whose wife has died, and Kelly is a 25-year-old man-hating international saleswoman. The two of them, in a plane crash, are left on an island. No one else survives. There is no hope of being rescued. And they fall in love with each other. No, they invest in each other and they learn to love each other because they have no, and it explains why. I wish that somebody that could write a novel, you know, would take, would, would write us a little booklet or something about Robert and Kelly. Because notice there at the top, the short paragraph of explanation under the story, it says, with nothing in common, these two stranded survivors learned to love each other out of need and no other options. It was not a feeling. It was out of duty to save themselves. And they found companionship in, by investing in each other. Enough about the can't, I can't tell you the whole story, but uh, they were rescued a few years later and they had a child or two and they never wanted to separate because they had invested in each other on this island and learned to love each other and invest in each other. The second one is an arranged marriage, the choice of love. It's what I just taught you. It's love is a choice. You can set your affection on a person. Abijam and Jeshua are arranged by their parents to be husband and wife. They learn to love each other after marriage. What a novel idea. What a brilliant idea. Because then you're seducing the other party inside a marriage where it is right instead of outside a marriage where it is wrong. Because all that dating nonsense is unreal. Marriage isn't like dating with sex. Marriage is horrible compared to dating. Because in dating, everybody's on their best behavior. It's a joke. It's a fraud. But what if that little girl arrived with a suitcase and and a bite, you know, a bite, I don't know if a bite's male or female now that I look at the outline, but let's say it's the male. The man opens the door. And he sees this little girl. She's scared out of her wits. He can see her legs quivering. She's holding her suitcase. That The four parents have just put the two of them together. Now what kind of an animal is he going to be? Is he going to speak kindly to her? I mean, if he's wise. We only want to think about wise men. What would a wise man do? He said, Let's, let me take that suitcase. How long, when's the last time you had something to drink? Let me get you something nice to drink. Let's, let's take a walk around the back 40 and show you how big the property is here. I know what you guys are all thinking. Don't think it. Oh, enough about that one. I'll say more than I need to. The action of love. Third column. Back to the dating game. All men and women know how to seduce the opposite sex because you did it once already by getting married. Proves you know how to do it. And they should use this knowledge in their marriage. So... This particular couple's retreat was just to look at it from different angles. God has already providentially given us our spouse. Let's choose to love them. Let's do the right things that we know how to do because we did them in getting our spouse and we would automatically know how to do them again if our spouse died and we were back on the market. 
And then fourth, recovery of love. So you're in a marriage that's been disastrous for a while and you've lost that first love. There's a way to get started over again. Marital love can be rejuvenated and God will even help to recover lost years and ground. Why not get started today? And the points below it and the scriptures below it are to encourage you that God providentially has given you your spouse. Choose to love them, which, which is action, the first works. Remember from whence thou art fallen, repent and do the first works. That's column number three, the action of love. And you can recover it, restore your marriage to be the hot marriage, God-pleasing, Christ-honoring marriage that it ought to be. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.